You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Last week we looked at a passage that taught us what to look for in deacons, and I want us to return over the next few Sundays to Luke's Gospel Last time we were in Luke's Gospel, we were looking at the, uh, the, the genealogy of our Savior. And what's happening in this passage is Jesus is led into the wilderness where he is tempted by the devil. The devil tempts Jesus uh, with uh, three challenges. And what I'd like to do, and if I'm completely honest, I've been looking forward to this for over a year. I know that sounds crazy. I've been looking forward to this for over a year to just look at these temptations one at a time. And I've been contemplating preaching through one of the Gospels for quite a while. Uh, but Matthew and Luke were always at the top of the list, partly because both of them uh, outlined what exactly this dialogue was like, this dialogue between uh, the devil and Jesus. So that's where we are this morning. It's Luke chapter 4, and we'll just be looking at the first four verses. And little theologians, in this passage, uh, Jesus is in the wilderness, and he's surrounded by many stones. Now, the devil, according to uh, Luke, uh, the devil says to Jesus, turn one stone into a loaf. But when Matthew, in Matthew chapter 4, talks about this, the devil says, turn these stones, plural, into bread, collective, most likely plural. But well, here's what I want you to do. Little theologians, if you could just draw something that you have a lot of. Just, if, you have, if you have a lot of, just draw something that you have a lot of. Because Jesus is standing in the middle of a stone-strewn landscape. And the devil says, turn this stone into bread. All I want from you is just a picture of stuff that you have a lot of. The passage again is in Luke chapter 4, just verses 1 through 4. Let me pray first, and then we'll look at the scripture together. Our Father, we come before you to submit. And... No one will submit unless your spirit softens those hearts. We just have a, a rebellious, easily distracted heart, and we need your spirit to settle that heart that we might hear your word. And I personally need that, but I also need that same spirit to impel your word, to lay it upon my heart in such a way that as it comes out of my mouth, it would be you and not me that is the object of the word. And so, Father, uh, we pray that your Spirit would soften receptive hearts. We pray that your Spirit would impel a, a speaking, preaching heart like mine. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. This is God's Word. I don't know if you remember uh, what it was like when you first became a Christian, how you read God's Word, how you made sense of stories that perhaps you were hearing for the first time, but 
this, this scene, this temptation scene, I, I remember as a new Christian uh, always looking at this scene as if it was some kind of superhero battle. As if both Jesus and the devil were on equal footing and both of them were entering into a debate. And maybe there was just a lot of my own sin in that. I wanted to be a good debater. And here you see Jesus and the devil just going at it. Well, I don't think that's the most helpful way to look at the passage. In fact, it, it, it could actually go completely backwards and you're no longer reflecting upon what's really happening in this scene because Jesus and the devil are never standing on equal footing. They're never standing on equal footing. And we have a temptation to look at this passage and we, we think about this, this well, frankly, we think about like a superhero movie or most science fiction where you have these two uh, these opposing forces, good and evil, going against one another. In the back of our minds, we know that good always survives, right? Isn't that the, the formula for a superhero story? You know, good always conquers evil, but why? Why would good always conquer evil? There's no reason at all why good would have more strength than bad, at least not in a superhero movie. Is it the uniform? Is it the special power that the superhero has? Why? Why would good ever? Why? Do, do you get what I'm saying? So now you're saying to yourself, there's no way I'm watching a movie with that guy ever. But um, why, why is it that good should overcome evil? If there's, if there's any tension in that scene, it's because they both seem so equal. They seem so equal. But in this scene, Jesus and the devil are not equal. And that's, that's a mistake that I, that I had many years as a Christian looking at this as just proof that, yep, good always overcomes evil. But the situation is totally driven by God and His wonderful will to draw His people to Himself. We so easily forget that it's the Holy Spirit that has actually led Jesus into this wilderness, that this would be the means by which God saves His people the means by which God draws His people to Himself. And, and what I want you to understand is that there's this larger narrative in place, this larger story. It's not that right here on the battlefield, everyone is waiting to see who will win. God is one. God is one here. And that's, that's important when we uh, look at this passage. God is completely in charge over this situation. And what's remarkable is that Jesus defends Himself as being the one means by which anyone is saved. When Jesus goes into this wilderness and He comes up against the devil and the devil uh, tempts Jesus, we'll talk about that, as the devil tempts Jesus, uh, what Jesus is showing to us here this morning is that there is only one path for salvation and it's through this Jesus God centers all of His salvific work on this Jesus, this one person. He is the one person whom God has had His Holy Spirit descend upon. He's the one person who is filled with the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and He's the one person that this Holy Spirit leads into the wilderness. All of Christian salvation is focused on this one man. The passage is telling us this. It's telling us that life is far more than food. And the passage, I think, goes one step further and says not only is life more than food, right? Because that sounds a little bit like a platitude. Life is more than food. 
But the passage talks about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, that life is more than food, and that nobody has life apart from Christ Jesus. Nobody has life apart from Christ Jesus. It might look like they have life, and you might be here this morning thinking that you have life without Christ Jesus. He's still in the back burner for you. But don't be mistaken, this passage is saying that, that God's plan of salvation is unfolded in one way and that nobody, nobody has life apart from Christ. So when we look at this passage, I really want to focus on Christ uh, having life according to a Trinitarian purpose. That's my first point. That, that Christ has life. He lives His life according to a Trinitarian purpose. And let, me, let me tell you what I mean by that. This, uh, this passage shows up, and, and the question that seems to be on the lips of God are, let, let me show you exactly what kind of man this Jesus will be. And I think it's fair for us to ask, what kind of man is this Jesus? What kind of man is he? Because as we look at Jesus, Jesus has already done so many wonderful things in his life prior to the age of 30. And, and I, I mention 30 because Luke mentions 30. We, we can look at Jesus' life from 0 to 30, and, and we can see that this Jesus is already identified with human nature. He's been born like us. He has submitted to His parents. He has lived under their authority. Uh, we have that story of Jesus when He was 12 years old actually studying in the Father's house. We have, we've seen this Jesus do that. And we've also seen this Jesus uh, identify Himself with us by being baptized. There is nothing that He has to repent of, and yet Jesus is baptized. And in Luke's Gospel, Luke's Gospel is unique here, we've been told that Jesus prays. That Jesus at His baptism actually prays. And then almost as if it's kind of the icing on the cake, as it were, uh, we have been told that Jesus already satisfies God. The heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him. And there was a, a public audience of this event. The heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descends not upon everyone equally and not upon everyone except Jesus, but Jesus alone. And when God speaks, God addresses Jesus alone when he says, You are my beloved Son, with you I'm well pleased. What more can Jesus do? What more can he do? There's a sense in, in which the, the gospel account of Luke could end at the end of chapter 3. And we would see that this is the one who actually uh, satisfies God. But as we, uh, as we look at Jesus' life, it would appear to, uh, should appear to us that from God's perspective, Jesus has more to do. That there is a work at hand. That Jesus has something to do. That Jesus has a job. Because that Holy Spirit doesn't simply rest upon Jesus. The Holy Spirit takes Him into the wilderness. We begin to ask, what now? What now? What does He have left to do? And I want to suggest to you that what He has left to do is He, is he has to redeem our nature. He has to redeem our nature because Jesus goes into the wilderness with our nature, yours and mine. He goes into the wilderness as a human. He's compelled to go by the Holy Spirit that he might be tested. The, the Greek word for testing and tempting is the same word. And some, some scholars, uh, R.C. Sproul being one of them, he, he thinks that the word tempting in uh, Luke 4 and Matthew 4 is not as helpful as the word testing. That Jesus is being tested. There's a work to be done. 
It, it, it's as if we could look at Jesus' life and, and we could hope that He would be tested, that it's not over yet. I can feel it in, in the fibers of my body. It's not over yet. You need to do something more. Would you take my nature into a place where my nature was broken, where my nature failed? And I think what Jesus is doing is He's going into the wilderness in a way that Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden. I'll make that argument a little bit later, but just, just be aware that it is God's plan to take Jesus into the wilderness. If we look at Mark's very brief account of this, Mark 1.12 uh, reads that the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Isn't that a powerful image? The Holy Spirit immediately drove Jesus into the wilderness. You must do this work. You must do this, Jesus. What's remarkable is that in the future, Jesus is going to go into the wilderness, but He's not going to go into the wilderness to be tested. Do you remember what Jesus does later in His public ministry? He goes into the wilderness. Why? To commune with God. To be close with God. To retreat from the world. And there in the wilderness, He meets God and He prays and speaks with God. But right now, the Holy Spirit is driving Him into a wilderness that will tempt Him. But if we know anything about Jesus, we know that there's a great victory that takes place because Jesus in the future goes into the wilderness that he might commune with God. And his work is to drag our nature through this test. He's already satisfying to God, but he drags our nature through this test and he does something for that nature that we can't do. It's the heart of Protestant Christianity. He does something for our nature that we can't do. Christ has life according to Trinitarian purpose. This is what God is doing. This is what God has done so that you, Christian, would know that your sins have been forgiven because all of the punishment of those sins have been paid for. Maybe we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. The second thing I want to say first is that Christ has life according to Trinitarian purpose. The second is this, is that Christ lives His life dependent upon the Heavenly Father. And this is where I want to just, just begin with that question, how is it that Jesus can be tempted? Or how is it that Jesus can be tested? I hope you understand this about yourself. And that's this, that it's, it's nothing outside of you that actually causes you to sin. James is very clear about this in James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, when he describes uh, how it is that we actually partake of sin. And no one can say, well, I was tempted out here and that's why I sinned. That's only half the story. I hope that you're here this morning and you're, and you're willing to admit that. That it's not simply a matter of an external temptation. There's some internal, James calls it a desire. There, there's some internal reality, a, a part of your constituted nature that actually wants to go towards that temptation. It's not a matter of something simply being external to you. There's something internal. And we call that pollution. That there is, there is this indwelling power inside of every human being after the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. And that polluted state actually yearns for those things that are externally held before us as tempting. This is why James says that it's not simply a matter of temptation, it's really being lured and enticed from our own desires. Lured and enticed. Just think about your own sin. Do you think about your own sin as being lured and enticed by something internal? 
I think that's pretty hard, isn't it? I can be lured and enticed by things outside of me, by friendships and relationships and things on a screen. But can I be lured and enticed by something inside of me? Well, James says you're always lured and enticed by something inside of you. There may be something external there, but there may not be. But there's always that internal desire. Always. And when we look at Jesus' testing, and this is R.C. Sproul's point, Jesus says, you know, the temptation of Jesus is a bit different, isn't it? Because Jesus doesn't have that polluted nature so that He desires something internally. He doesn't have that kind of desire. So there might be an external temptation or a test that we are going to run towards because of an internal desire, but Jesus, He doesn't have that internal desire. And so there's something very different happening here. And... and Maybe just using the word test uh, helps, but it doesn't make all the problems uh, go away. Um, let me suggest uh, looking at it at Jesus' uh, temptation or the testing of Jesus in this way. And, and here I'm stealing from uh, a dead theologian named John Owen. John Owen looks at Hebrew 2, verse 18, and he says, this is really clear. He says, because he himself, Jesus, has suffered when tempted... It's that same word. It could be suffered when tested. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so John Owen is rightfully grabbing Hebrews 2.18 and he's saying, look, clearly uh, Jesus suffered during this testing. And maybe we can't parse that his suffering was exactly like ours. And John Owen says that's not really the point, is it? How did Jesus suffer in His testing and His temptation? Maybe we can't answer that, but we do need to say this. We grab to Hebrews 2.18 and John Owen says, Jesus suffered in such a way that He actually can help you in your suffering and in your temptation. Jesus experienced something in that wilderness that enables Him to actually taste your own suffering. And it may be that we can't go much further than that. But John Owen goes a little bit further and he says this. He says, Jesus possessed a human nature that was exactly as God intended. You ever cried when, you, when there's no reason to cry? Hmm. Maybe not many of you. How about this? Have you ever been angry when there is no reason to be angry? I think I'd get more hands with that. And John Owen says, look, when Jesus was uh, crying, when Jesus was angry, when Jesus was despondent, when Jesus endured loneliness, His human nature was such that He tasted those things far more passionately than you. When I cry, sometimes it's not appropriate to cry. But when Jesus wept over Jerusalem, it was entirely appropriate to weep over Jerusalem. And look what Luke tells us in this passage. He says that Jesus was hungry. Jesus was hungry. And possessing a human nature that was exactly as God intended it to be, a human nature that's not clouded by pollution, Jesus, when Jesus is hungry, He's really hungry. When you're hungry, you, you may not be. Do, do you get what I'm after? Jesus possessed a nature that was far more intense than our nature because His nature is not clouded by the pollution of sin. And John Owen's point is simply this. Try it on for size. See if this works. Email me. Talk to me about it. Just, Owen just says, look, whatever suffering Jesus is enduring in, in the temptation, Hebrews 2.18, he says it's an intense suffering. It's a legitimate suffering. It may be a little bit like yours, 
certainly not exactly like yours, but it's such an intense kind of suffering that He knows exactly how to show you compassion. He knows exactly what you need to be comforted in your own suffering. If there's anything different in Jesus' suffering, and to be sure there is, it's actually more intense than any suffering you could possibly endure. And maybe that's just where you leave it. That's where John Owen left it. And this is a man who wrote um, 10 or 11 volumes on Hebrews alone. Christ lives life dependent upon the Father to such a degree that He's actually tasting suffering in the wilderness. Now, when Jesus goes into the wilderness, He's actually going into the wilderness to restore the brokenness of our human nature. Now, so often we look at this scene and we think immediately, Jesus is going into the wilderness for 40 days. That's exactly like the wilderness of the Israelites for 40 years in Numbers chapter 14. And in Numbers chapter 14, Israel goes into that wilderness. Deuteronomy 8 references it as well. And it's a time for the testing of the people to see if they would actually follow God. And it was a time for them to feel God's displeasure, to taste God's punishment for those 40 years. And they didn't learn their lesson, did they? The proof that they didn't learn their lesson is John the Baptist's ministry is a ministry of repentance. And he preaches this message of repentance, and most people say, no, I don't need to repent. So clearly the 40-year experience in the wilderness was one in which the people didn't learn much. They didn't learn much. And maybe as Jesus is spending 40 days in the, in the wilderness, we're to think about those 40 years in the wilderness in which the people were tested and failed, in which the people tasted God's displeasure. Certainly Jesus quotes from that scene with Deuteronomy 8. And, and some actually, and I really like this, when they look at the wilderness experience of Jesus, those 40 days, they think of Moses. Write down in the margin of your Bibles Deuteronomy chapter 9 and read that this afternoon or this week. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, Moses is on Mount Sinai and he's, and he's hearing uh, God proclaim the law to him. And as Moses is there, he tells us clearly that he didn't eat and he didn't drink for 40 days and 40 nights. And one wonders if that isn't what Jesus is going through. In this particular scene, Jesus is in the wilderness like Moses is in the wilderness, and Moses has no food or water, Jesus has no food or water, and Moses is hearing God's law. And Jesus is hearing God's law. He's reading His Word. Maybe that is the analogy. The reason I want you to read Deuteronomy 9, because Moses does it not once but twice. When the people reject God and rebel against God, then what does Moses do? For another 40 days and 40 nights, he's on that mountain listening to God, but this time he's on his face. And he's appealing to God that God wouldn't destroy these people. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's, and he's hungry. He's hungry. And it could be that Jesus is showing us what it looks like to go through the 40-year wilderness of Israel as a nation and to do that for God's glory. To do that for God's glory. Or it could be that He's reminding us of Moses who laid before God, appealing to God that God would deliver these people. But maybe it's this. When the devil comes to Jesus, the scene is very remarkable. It's almost as if devil, the devil coming to Jesus should re remind us of the Garden of Eden. You know, Job was tested by 
the devil. But Job never talked to the devil. It was God speaking to the devil. When do we have this occurrence where the devil is speaking face to face with a person of the Trinity? When do we have an occasion like that? We have that in the prologue to Job where the devil is talking to God. But look what we have here on earth. We have Jesus face to face with the devil. And it ought to remind us of the devil's conversation with Adam. And the devil says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. He assumes that Jesus has been called the Son of God. He has publicly. You have that before you in Luke's Gospel. He's already been called publicly the Son of God. And and the devil is saying, if you are the Son of God, I think he's saying, okay, let's allow for that, that you're the Son of God. And he's playing upon Jesus' hunger. He's playing upon his human nature. That if you are the Son of God, divine, and if you are hungry, taking upon yourself this worthless human nature of these people who don't deserve your attention, if you are the Son of God and if you are hungry, cross those. Put those two things to work. Make the hunger go away by exercising this authority that you have being the Son of God. He's playing on Jesus' hunger that Jesus might take his, His divine properties and get a cash value for them. You know what I mean by that? That He might pawn them. You ever pawned anything? That's too personal, huh? He's asking that Jesus would take these divine properties and pawn them for the sake of making that hunger go away. Do you see what the devil is asking Jesus to do? The devil is asking Jesus to do something that we do all the time. Have you ever worried? Have you ever been riddled with anxiety? That never happened to you. What are you willing to do to make the worrying go away? What are the things that you can do to just make that worry go away? What Jesus does is He trusts God's Word. Instead of worrying, instead of being riddled with anxiety, where will my meal come from? Jesus trusts God's Word. And He knows that food isn't everything. Food isn't everything. Do you remember uh, when Esther was afraid for her life? If I help the Jewish people, I might lose my own. And do you know what Esther said in Esther 4.16? If I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, do you see how logically inconsistent it is that you would worry? And look, I'm speaking to myself as well. How logically inconsistent it is that you would worry, that you would be anxious for anything. Esther says, if I perish, I perish. And Jesus says, I'm fed by God. I'm fed by God. If I perish, I perish. He knows what's best for me. You know, when the devil went to Adam and Eve in the garden, the same thing didn't happen, did it? It it wasn't long for the devil to actually compel Adam and Eve to believe that they weren't provisioned, that they weren't cared for, that they need to do something and they need to do something quickly if they are to, to sustain themselves. And Adam and Eve did that when they are in the precious garden of the Lord, when they are standing in a place that is beautiful, when they are standing in their house. This is their home. 
the Garden of Eden, and Jesus is standing in an obscure place. He's standing in the wilderness. And Adam and Eve were full of vitality because they had just eaten that day. But Jesus is weak. He's hungry. He's starving. And Adam and Eve are in the middle of a garden in which God said, you can eat from any tree. Provision is all around them. And Jesus has nothing but stones. And Adam had Eve. And Eve had Adam. And Jesus is alone. The devil catches Jesus in a situation that is much changed from Adam and Eve to the disadvantage of Jesus it would seem and yet Jesus right there in the wilderness is teaching us what it looks like to please God the work is not done and he's teaching us he's teaching us to say if I perish I perish life is more than food he's redoing what Adam and Eve did in the garden He's redoing the wilderness wandering of 40 years and He's displaying to us what it looks like to say, if I perish, I perish. Now, here's where I want to conclude. I want you to hear this morning that you have no life apart from Christ's life. Nobody does. Nobody has life apart from Christ's life. Every Christian should know that life is more than food. I can say that to you. I can say that to myself. We know that. Life is more than food. Why am I so anxious? Why am I so worried? And I know that that's a tremendous challenge for us in our Christian sanctification. But we know that it's true that life is more than food. But the reason we know that this is true is because Jesus Christ is my food. That dwelling upon Christ Jesus, dining upon Christ Jesus, living with Him, that is my food, that is my life, and I will be with Him for all eternity. And I may be poor, I may be ugly, I may have a terrible job, I may be very discontent with my life and my relationships, and I may actually be hungry. But Christ is my food, and if I perish, I perish. If I'm embarrassed, I'm embarrassed. If I'm shamed, I'm shamed. But he, He's my food. And the work that He does in His ministry in this wilderness is actually my work. I'm there with Him in faith, in the wilderness. That's me. He redoes what Adam did. He redoes what the nation of Israel did. And everything that is broken is restored because He does that for a nature. That's me. If you're here as a Christian, you're there with Him in that wilderness. That's your salvation. It's His perfection doing for your nature what you can't do. Now, I'm challenged with this question. Why don't more people believe this? Why don't more people believe this? And I think one, here's one of the reasons, right? People don't believe this because they refuse to receive Jesus as the bread of life. Okay, that's, that's a perfectly biblical way of understanding why someone would persist in living as an unbeliever. They refuse to receive Jesus as the bread of life. But I want you to think about this as well. Maybe someone doesn't receive Jesus Christ for this reason, and this might actually categorize it better. Maybe they're just not hungry enough. Maybe they're not hungry enough. I mean, think about that. Think about having the power to just turn obstacles into food. And maybe they think that's what life is. It's turning obstacles into provision. I I can endure all challenges. 
I don't need Jesus. The food that he offers, I don't need. I'm, I'm, I'm rocks in the bread, rocks in the bread. I do it 40 times a day. I do it seven days a week. Rocks in the bread, rocks in the bread. And they're just not hungry enough. They themselves can defeat every challenge. If you're here this morning and you're just convinced that Jesus is not the food for you, then I want to suggest that I don't think you're hungry enough because He is the food for you. And your life is a life of just taking rocks and turning them into bread. You are utterly convinced that you have every solution bound up in your heart. You'll make do. You'll make it work. You're a fighter. I want you to be a fighter who knows where their food is. And it may be right now you're not hungry enough, but there will come a time when Jesus stands before you and you'll know. You'll know that none of those rocks became a bread of eternal life for you. You'll know that you spent all of your time converting rocks and there's no salvation in those rocks because they're doing no good for you when Jesus stands before you as a judge. One of the problems may be they just refuse to receive Jesus as the bread of life, but I love that picture. They're busy. They're working. And they refuse to receive Jesus because they're still turning stones into bread. Well, it's a reminder to you who are here as a Christian to know who has worked your salvation, and that's Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, that's a, that's a funny way to describe the life of an unbeliever, but that's what the Bible does. It describes unbelievers as people engaged in turning rocks into food. And it provides no eternal security. Christians, we dine on the, the body of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Let's give Him thanks, and then we're going to receive a few new members to this congregation. Please pray with me. Uh, Jesus, we thank You for living a life that we couldn't live, and indeed we, we did not live uh, marked as we are with Adam's complete and total failure. But Jesus, we thank You for living that life, and we thank You for sharing that life. We thank You that in faith, we come to You and the life that You lived becomes our life. And the death that You died becomes our death because You are resurrected. And there will be one day where we also, as Christians, have a resurrected, glorified body. But Jesus, we thank You this morning for doing in the wilderness what we were unable to do and never can do. In Your name, Jesus, amen.